and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. In our continuing look at the ancient church at Philadelphia, we will see that not only did they face an open door, but they also had three specific blessings coming. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 should make you ask, is my God big enough? There was a Christless Christianity back then, and there can be a Christless Christianity nowadays as well. And now, with his message for this morning, our senior pastor, Robert Elliott. Please pray with me. Lord, we praise you that these young people led us in singing about your greatness and your, your loveliness from their hearts. We rejoice in transformed lives of any age. Lord, I pray together in these moments in your word that we would come to see more of you and less of ourselves. May we see you as big and as wonderful and as sufficient as you in fact are. Lord, hide me that you would magnify Christ. And we pray this in his name together, amen. Is your God big enough? I don't know what you face this week, whether it's a financial problem, a parenting problem, a health crisis. Is your God big enough? It was Teddy Roosevelt who had a friend, a naturalist named William Beebe. From time to time, the two men would go out into the night sky and they would look up, and together they would search for the constellation of Pegasus. And once the two men had found it, they would say this in unison together. This is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. As large as our Milky Way, it is one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. After the two men would say that together, one would turn to the other and say, now I think we're small enough, let's go inside. Is your God big enough? Some people think that God is their co-pilot. If you think God is your co-pilot, I would suggest you switch seats with him. Is your God big enough? We are looking at the ancient church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. Last week we looked at the first part of the letter to this church, and we saw that there was no rebuke for this particular local church and that they faced an open door of service for the Savior, but in that open door was opposition. That they were not to conclude they had no open door for service because there was opposition. Quite the contrary, because there was opposition in the door, they could know they had an open door to serve Christ. We talked last week about that being a timeless truth. That for us today as well, the open doors that Christ has for us to share our faith are often with opposition standing right in them. And last week we gave the challenge from the word to share our faith, to share the gospel with at least one person this past week. To God's glory, how many of you shared the gospel last week? Praise God, we can do better this week. 
This week, pray yourself through an open door for the gospel and share Christ with someone this week. Jesus Christ, when he opens a door, no one can shut that door. Let's follow along in our copies of God's word. Revelation 3, 7 to 13, the church of ancient Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly, hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God and my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just to review still from last week, you'll remember that they were not rebuked because they were small in number and yet they were true to the word of God. They were small in number, but they were loyal to Christ even when they were persecuted by this synagogue of Satan. And now this morning we move into verses 9 to 13 to see what else the risen Christ wrote to them. And basically, to preview, we're going to see three things that the ancient church of Philadelphia could expect. First, they could expect vindication. Second, they could expect evacuation. And third, they could expect habitation. Vindication, evacuation, habitation. We'll unpack them one at a time. Let's start with the expectation of vindication. That ancient church could expect to be vindicated by Christ, and we also can expect to be vindicated by our Savior here in 2013. Verse 9, once again. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and make them to know that I have loved you. The synagogue of Satan back then were fake spiritual Jews. They put themselves out as being real Jews, but they were imposters. They were fake Jews in this synagogue of Satan. They had emperor worship mixed into what they believed. They were a Messiah-less Judaism. Let me ask you this, were they any worse off than we could be today being a Christless Christianity? A Christless Christianity is no better than a fake Judaism without a Messiah. Verse 9 again, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie, I will make them come and lie down at your feet and I will make them know that I have loved you. Jesus Christ is going to make, was going to make those people bow down to the church of Philadelphia, not in worship, but in deference. Bow down as if to say you were right. 
Jesus is who you say the word says that Jesus is. They would be made to bow down and they would be made to know that Christ had loved the ancient church in Philadelphia. The word there for love in the Greek is agape that they would be made to know that Jesus discerned their needs, sacrificed to meet their needs without consideration of the cost to him or that they could ever pay him back. They would be made to bow down in deference to Christ's followers and they would be made to understand the cross. This is forced overcoming of bias. And the day will come when the risen Christ one day will force the bias against him and the world system to be reversed. It says, as you know, in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now watch. Just like the people with bias in the ancient city of Philadelphia will be forced to recognize that the ancient Philadelphians had it right about Jesus and that Jesus loved by the cross the ancient Philadelphians. Watch what happens globally. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm looking forward to that day. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas, and today we're going to continue talking about discipleship, and we want to talk about what does it cost a person to follow Christ? The Bible is very clear that when we follow Christ, we must die to ourselves. We must pick up our cross daily and die to ourselves daily with Him. And today we want to continue and we want to look at Jesus talking to a crowd again as He talks about what it means to follow Him. And Luke chapter 14 verse 25 said that now great crowds were traveling with Him. So He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I want to stop there for a second because we need to recognize here that there were great crowds, multitudes of people following Jesus. And we know in our own lives, in our own circles, that when we have a big crowd, we want to say something that's going to be encouraging or be a thing that lifts them up. But here Jesus is very cold with the crowd and he tells them, look, this is what it means to follow me. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, we need to make sure that we understand what this word hate here means. It doesn't mean how we consider when we say we hate someone. But yet what this means is that we love Christ so much more than these individuals that, that it, it is compared to hate. Because we are so in love with Christ that we understand that no matter what, we're going to follow Christ above these different individuals. You see, it talks about a mother, a father, a wife, children, brothers and sisters. Yes, we need to understand that we need to love Christ so much that every other relationship, when it compares to our relationship with Christ, is no comparison. You see, we need to understand that we must even 
not like our own life because we have to understand that we have given our life over to Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but it is Christ who lives in me. You see, we need to recognize that it is not my life anymore when I come to Christ. It is His life. And what is He going to do with it? And how, what am I going to allow Him to do? Verse 27 of Luke 14 continues, says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As you know, we talked about this in the last two sessions that we talked about what it means to carry the cross and how the picture of the cross is death, that we must die to ourselves. We must re recognize that before we come to Christ, we have to die to ourselves. But we also must understand that what Jesus is trying to say is that we need to make sure that we count the cost of following Christ. You see, this relationship with Jesus Christ is not a relationship that we take lightly and say, well, you know, I'm going to come to Christ for a fire insurance because I don't go to hell, and then I'm going to just do my, live my life the way I want. No, but we must count the cost. We must recognize that this doesn't come without a price. And verse 28 says, For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost or see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it at all. The onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. You see, we must recognize that this particular passage is saying is it's telling us this, that we have to count the cause. It's just like when we turn around in our own country, we look around and we see so many different houses that have started, but yet did not finish. And we know there are different circumstances why someone may not be able to finish the house, but before we start a house, we must make sure that we can finish it. Because it's no good if a house has just started and we can't put a roof on it to finish the house or we can't live in a house. It's just sitting there. It's money wasted. And what happens a lot of times is that when we want to go ahead and use that house, we still got to do renovation because we haven't counted the cost. We haven't said we're going to do everything we can to make sure we finish and complete this house. It's the same thing when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. We must count this cost. We must understand that Jesus Christ wants us to know that we are his disciple. We are following after him. And he wants us to follow him with everything that we have. You see, we can't say that I'm going to give you this part of my life. You know what, God? I'm going to give you my Sunday. And I might give you a little prayer meeting during the week. But the rest of this, my life, I want to live the way I want to live. No, that's not what he's saying here. He is saying that we need to understand that we are giving our whole life to him. And saying, God, whatever it is you want to do, you do. You see, it's just like us giving Christ a blank piece of paper, sign the bottom and say, Jesus, whatever you want to do with my life, you do it. You see, it's a cost. It's a price. You see, we, are, we have to understand that we cannot go in a food store or anywhere and just say, I want this without paying the price. So why do we think that we can come to Jesus without really sitting down and counting the price and knowing how much it's going to cost? So I want to challenge you this morning, if you're listening to this, to recognize that when we consider our relationship with Christ, this relationship compares to no other. Because we should be so in love with Christ that we want to spend as much time with Him as possible and that we continue to pursue Him with everything because we want to be His disciple and give Him everything that we have. This is Pastor Nicholas, and you're listening to Utah. Recently, Pastor Rob had the opportunity to have the youth director from the Bahamas Godparent Center, Audra Darrell, in the studio to share her personal God story. We now resume from where we left off last week. 
So could you help us understand a little bit when when you uh, knew what what you had done was wrong and how, how did you go to God in prayer, if you could share that? When I fully understood all of what I had done, mm-hmm. I was um, actually, I had been out the night before. Mm-hmm. And um, I, again, was trying to numb myself. And so I was under the influence and the Lord spoke to me mm-hmm. and he was like, Audra, this is not who I made you to be. Yes. And I was like, oh, whoa, okay. And I was with friends that I, again, shouldn't have been with. And it was cool because they got to see all of it. And so I was like, guys, I need to go to church right now. Um, It was like, it was early Sunday morning. And I woke everybody up and I was like, guys, we need to go to church, like right now. And they were like, what, what? We just, no, we can't go to church. And I was like, guys, I need to go to church now. And I walked into church, still under the influence, and I got down um, at the altar, and I just, I prayed, and I wept. I wept. I was like, Lord, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sorry. And I, I think I sat there for maybe an hour, mm-hmm. just just letting it all out. And um, everybody that was with me was like, what is going on? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. And... Um, I got the opportunity to tell them, like, hey, this is what's, what what happened. And um, it was so cool to see that even though I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do, he still allowed me to be able to be vulnerable and honest mm-hmm. with those people. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was just really cool to be able to do that and have that experience. Um, and so now it's like I've... I've said sorry for those things and I don't want to go back there because I've already, I know what that is. I know what that feels like, you know? Yes. Um, so it was, it was pretty cool. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that part of your heart. It's very personal and very uh, private, but you're, you're helping people who are listening and I appreciate your willingness to talk at that level. Um, so your homo legato moments happened to be in a church building at an altar, which is, of course, what God had for you at that juncture. Uh, probably it would be good for me, though, to, to point out that we can have those homo legato say the same thing about our sins to God anywhere, whether, you know, mm-hmm. anywhere. But yeah. you, you felt a great need to get into a church building. Yeah. And, and I respect that. But I just wouldn't want anybody to wonder, well, do I have to go to a church building? And yeah, of course, no. it's not a it's not a, a GPS point, but it's a, a cardiac heart point right. that we get to right. that we would agree with God about our sin. Right. Well, let me ask you this, Audra. Um, obviously, the Lord has brought you through quite a valley and you've come out on the other side with both compassion for others and a new appreciation for God's grace. What would you say are the main things which you have learned about God's grace? Um, I would say that I've learned that it is unending. Unending. And it's, it's true. Unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, in the moments that you don't think that you would receive it, you mm-hmm. do. And it, it blows your mind. I've learned that it doesn't necessarily look the same for everybody. Mm. It may look different in everybody's life what their grace moments will look like. Mm. Um, I've learned that I've received so much grace that I can never withhold it from someone else. Say that again, please. 
I have received so much grace that I could never withhold it from someone else. Mm. Um, that wouldn't be right. Right. So we aren't to be uh, these repositories, containers that just hoard God's grace, put a cap on this vessel and say, this is all mine. This is God's grace. Yeah. But God means for us to be pipelines mm -hmm. uh, of his grace. So we receive it and then we give, give it out. Yeah. And uh, that's beautiful. And yeah. that's the earmark of a true Jesus follower mm -hmm. that we do so, isn't it? That's so good. You, you've shared some very significant things about God's grace. If someone would like to know what to do and what not to do relative to ministering to a Christian who has fallen into some kind of a public sin, what would you say? I would say, first off, love. Um, love. Think so many times we see public sin and we're like, oh, what are we supposed to do? Oh my gosh, like, ah. Uh. And there's this struggle with how do I respond? And um, for me, I've realized that they already have public sin. That's already a natural consequence of their sin. And so the Lord is already in some ways chastising them. Yes. And we don't need to. That's not our job. Our job is to love them through that time mm -hmm. in hopes that they will find the Lord, that they will fall in love with the Lord during that time. Um, so I, I think that's what I would say, love them. That is, uh, that is always a good uh, solution and always a good uh, tactic or not tactic, um, virtue. That's the word I'm looking for. It's always a good virtue. Um, so uh, what wouldn't be good to do if you see someone that has fallen into a public sin, you talked about um, uh, loving. So what would not be good to do, I would presume, is to talk behind their back, right. to avoid them, mm -hmm. to um, call into question their salvation. Mm -hmm. um, that is not to say that persons who fall into public sin who have claimed to be Christians aren't sometimes phony Christians. Right. But right. what I am saying is we can't um, just as a matter of fact conclude that a Christian who falls into a public sin is not a Christian, nor can we automatically conclude they've lost their salvation right. because we believe the scriptures teach that we once saved, we're always saved. Right. The grace that saves us from sin's penalty and power is the same grace that keeps us securely saved in right. God's family. John 10, 27 to 29 for those who would look that up on their own very good that's all the time we have for today we'll pick up from here next time lord willing for more information about the bahamas godparent center you can contact them by phone at 698-4306 it's time for answers to your questions we urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on we here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio 
at gmail.com. Today, Pastor Elliot draws from Carl Laney's excellent book, Answers to Tough Questions. This book was published back in 1997. And once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliot. This is what we read in Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he, that is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And the question is simply, who were the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two Jewish groups who were active in the time of Jesus. The Pharisees took matters of Jewish ceremony quite strictly and separated themselves from those who were not so diligent. Josephus, a Jewish historian, describes them as a body of Jews with the reputation of excelling the rest of their nation in the observances of religion and as exact exponents of the laws. This Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote, wrote further, it refer, and refers to them as the leading sect, S-E-C-T, the leading sect, and regards them as the most accurate interpreters of the law. In terms of doctrine, they believed in the sovereignty of God, that is that God is in full control. They believed in the eternal nature of the soul, and they believed in bodily resurrection. While the Pharisees were middle-class Jews who were associated with the synagogue, the Sadducees, as a group, were of the priestly aristocracy and were associated with the temple. Sadducees were the leaders with the power, money, and the influence in the time of Jesus. That Jewish historian Josephus records that while the Pharisees are affectionate to each other and cultivate harmonious relations with the community, the Sadducees on the contrary, are rather boorish, that means they have bad manners, in their behavior and in their conversation with their peers, and are as rude as to aliens. Wow. The Sadducees believed in human freedom to choose good or evil, and did not believe in the persistence of the soul after death, or in bodily resurrection. See Matthew 22, verse 23. The Sadducees held these views not because they were liberal, but because they were quite conservative and accepted only those doctrines that they believed were taught by Moses in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. Just as a little of humor, one way to remember the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That is why they were sad, you see. Ha. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.